as you have a seat, please turn to Romans chapter one. Uh, and I'm actually I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a choice this morning. I'm going to give you a, an opportunity to vote. I, I I've, I've prepared uh, two sermons, and I'm going to let you choose. I've, I've got a sermon on God's love and His mercy and His grace, and then I've got another one on His holiness and His wrath and His judgment. So, all in favor of love and mercy sermon. Okay, all in favor of justice and holiness and wrath sermon. Okay, so actually you don't get a vote. I just want to see how honest we would be as a group this morning. We're, we're going to follow where Paul's going to take us this morning. Um, so I want to do a little bit of review as we begin. Read with me chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. These are the, the theme verses, in a sense, for the whole book of Romans. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Book of Romans is about, a, about the gospel. And the gospel means literally good news. And what we said last week is the gospel is it's really beyond good news. It's the best news ever. It's the best news you could possibly hear because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And what Paul means in these thematic verses by the righteousness of God is not just God's character, that he is right in all that he does and thinks and says, his being itself, but that God sets us in a right relationship with him through the work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is good news. And the question that immediately might come to our minds is, well, why do we need the righteousness of God? Or why do we need good news? Paul's going to say extensively, you need good news because before you really can understand the depth of the good news, you got to understand that there's bad news that precedes it. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's righteousness is also revealed in his wrath or his anger towards sin. God hates sin, and God has to hate sin because God is uh, perfect in his holiness. He's perfect in his rightness. And his rightness is reflected in all that he has made, including it should be in us. But, it, but we're not. We're not right with God. And so Paul says the, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And one of the challenges we face when we hear uh, that word wrath is we, we think of our own anger or the anger of the people around us. And it's it's arbitrary, it's capricious, it's not controlled, but the wrath of God is not like that. God's anger is not like that. It's not uncontrolled, it's not capricious, it's not arbitrary. It's, it's a settled indignation against sin, and God has to hate sin because God is perfect in his holiness. And notice that his wrath against sin covers all people. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men. Paul's talking about everyone. He's not talking just about the worst of the worst. He's not talking about murderers or thieves, criminals. So the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, that is, sin against God, and all unrighteousness, sin against others. It's everybody. And so we're starting a, a section here. It begins in 118, and it's going to end in 323, in which Paul is going to say, 
Uh, each and every one of us is under the wrath of God because each and every one of us has sinned, and he's going to go individual to individual, group to group, and he's going to summarize it with this statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the next couple of weeks, in a sense, are going to be kind of dark because we really cannot understand the, the beauty of the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, that we're set right with God as a, as a gift to, that we simply receive by faith. We can't really understand how profoundly beautiful that gift is until we understand how profoundly broken we are, right? We don't, we're not just a little messed up, people. We're deeply, deeply broken, and our relationships are broken, and the world around us is broken, and our families are broken, and our neighborhoods are broken, and our culture is broken. And when we understand how deeply broken it is, then we, we just reach out and grasp the gospel as profoundly beautiful news. So what Paul is going to talk about this morning is, in a sense, why we need the good news. And he's going to give us two reasons. He can, he's going to start this week, and he's going to build on this argument through the next few weeks. But the first two reasons he's going to give are these. First, because we have rejected God. All right, we need good news because we have rejected God. And we're responsible for that rejection of God. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul says God has revealed himself. He has made himself known, and he's made himself known universally in a language that anyone can understand. He's revealed himself in creation. Perhaps you uh, recall Psalm uh, 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. God is making himself known constantly through creation. And what we have done is we have suppressed the truth. We have suppressed the truth. God has revealed himself, and mankind has suppressed what God has revealed Notice again what he says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has made himself known, and he's made himself known in a way that's adequate for anyone and everyone to understand. He's made himself known universally through his creation. Specifically, Paul says, uh, his eternal power and divine nature. What Paul means by that phrase is when you look around you, you have to acknowledge Something exists, not nothing. And that something is a universe that's vast and immeasurable and apparently ever-expanding. That universe reveals that there has to be one who exists outside of what is created. That is an uncaused cause. There must be a God. And he must be powerful. He must be intelligent. He must be good. And he's not me. I'm not God. And what he reveals in nature should force me to my knees and say, there's one that I must worship. Now, Albert Einstein, who is uh, probably the most famous physicist, maybe the only physicist that some of us even know, uh, once said this, my religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement of nature's law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systems of thinking and acting of human beings 
are an utterly insignificant reflection. I'm drawn to one who is greater than I. And what Paul argues is that God's revelation is so great in nature and is so thorough and so accessible to everyone that if a person chooses not to believe in God, it's because they have actively suppressed the truth, which means to stifle or to restrain or to bury the truth. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, if you could prove God to me, I'd believe him all the less. Saying, I say no. In the face of all of the evidence you present to me, I choose to say no. And Paul says, as a result, all of us are without excuse. There is no excuse. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, there is a God, there must be a God. They've been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Now, I hope this has never happened to you. I hope it never does happen to you, but um, for you students, um, you may have seen this before. I've, I've interacted with students, so this has happened to them. It's really a tragic moment where, you know, two weeks from now, you walk in to take your first major exam for the course for the fall, and uh, you're ready. Got your scantron, got your pencils, you're all lined up, got your calculator, you're ready, you're ready for the test. And as you walk in to take your test, the professor's handing graded tests back to the class. Like, what in the world? Go to the prophet and say, hey, the, the, the test was supposed to be today. It was on the syllabus. You know, I, was, I came in ready today to take the test. And the prophet said, you know, uh, last week I announced that the test was going to be earlier. And you go, well, I don't come to class because you're kind of boring. And I don't, I don't want to come to class. You go, well, you should have shown up in class. So said, also, um, I emailed all of the students. And you go, well, I, I don't I don't check my email. I'm, I just transferred from UT, and they call us. They call every the <laughs> professor calls everyone, and you know they just they hand us our own their scantron. It's just so. Well, I put it in in group me as well. Well, I don't. I, I drop my phone in the toilet. I don't have a phone. And process. I'm sorry. There's no excuse, man. I covered the bases. Paul says God has covered the bases. The truth is so expansive. It is so clear that if a person doesn't reach out to follow God is because they've chosen to suppress the truth and say no. What that means is no one will stand before God and be condemned because they lacked information. No one will stand before God and be condemned because they lacked re revelation from God, that God didn't reveal himself. Now, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've been asked the question, well, what about that person who's completely isolated and they never get to hear the gospel in Jesus Christ, but they're sincerely seeking after God? And what Romans 1 tells us is there is no such person. Because if a person sincerely seeks after God, God wants to be found. God's trying to reveal himself. God is shouting from the heavens. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And if a person sincerely is seeking after God, God will give that person more information about him. He will draw that person to himself. It says in Jeremiah chapter 29, you will search for me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God wants to be found. And so from God's perspective, this proliferation of religions in the world doesn't show that men are seeking after God, but that men are rejecting God and trying to find their own way. 
in life. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are under the sentence of condemnation because God has, in fact, revealed himself, and mankind has rejected God, first by suppressing revealed truth, and then second by exchanging God for idols. Verse 21, for even though they knew God and that he must exist, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what we see in this section is there's a, a downward spiral of sin. And notice where it begins. Verse 21 again. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't say, I'm going to let God be God and I'm not God. They didn't honor him as God. Do you remember where that first happened? In the garden. Satan came to Eve and said, you don't have to let God be God. You can be your own God. You can determine your own identity. You can determine your own purpose. You can determine your own destiny. You don't have to let God exercise his authority over you as creator. You can be your own God. So here's where the downward spiral starts. They didn't honor him as God. Second, they didn't give thanks. When do we see that first occur? Also, in the garden. Has God really given you every tree of the garden? No, he hasn't. He's withholding what's most important in the garden. Uh, as Oswald Chambers once said, this, the root of all evil is the suspicion that God is not good. It seems really simple, doesn't it? They didn't let God be God. They didn't give thanks. And this downward spiral or progression of sin began. And then what happened? They didn't honor him. As, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. But instead, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. That is, their capacity to understand who God is, that their reasoning ability became darkened because they rejected the revelation that they were given. Have you ever known a really, really, really intelligent person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ? Probably got a lot of them. How is that possible? I've always wondered, how is that possible? It's because when you reject the Creator and the revelation He's given, your capacity to reason becomes darkened. Okay, the mind is a gift from God, and when it's used in the worship of God, it, in a sense, becomes expansive in its understanding. But when we reject God, our capacity to reason toward God becomes diminished and darkened, and then what happens is our emotions and our affections are affected, our bodies are affected, our sexuality is affected, uh, what we understand as truth and goodness is affected, our relationships are all affected, our families are affected, our society is affected. So we didn't let God be God. And we didn't say thanks for what God has given. And so this downward spiral begins. But here's the, the, the paradox of this. Uh, mankind has to worship something because we're creatures. So we have to worship something. We have to give our hearts to something. We have to be devoted to something. So notice the, the root of this sin is, says the, they exchanged, he says it twice, they exchanged the incorruptible glory of God for an idol. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They said, I've got to have something, but it's not going to be God, so I'll worship something else. That's, that's the root of idolatry. 
Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, the Lord says, Ezekiel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. So I think that's a really good verse for us to wrap our minds around. When we think idols, we think little statues or big statues. And the point of idolatry is what are the affections of our heart. That's the root of idolatry. So the Lord says, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. They love something more than they love me. They're not giving me the devotion that I deserve. Let me share, you, share with you this quote from uh, Tim Keller. He said, a counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We were made to worship because we're creatures, we're finite, we're made to worship. And if it's not God, it's going to be something else. So what happens? Well, we've rejected God, and because we've rejected God, God allows us to be turned over to the consequences of our sin and rejection. This is why we really, really need good news. First two reasons, because we've rejected God, because God has released us to the consequences of our sins. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is righteous. God is holy. God is love. These are fundamental attributes of God. This is who God is. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. God is holy. 1 John chapter 1, God is love. God is not angry, angry, angry. Okay? Anger and wrath is not a fundamental attribute of God. That's a response out of his holiness towards sin. Right? But fundamental to God's attributes is that he is holy. So when he looks on sin, he has to respond in anger, in his righteousness, he also responds by paying the debt of our sins in Jesus, but we'll get to that later. We'll get back to the good news. Right now, Paul is focusing our attention on the fact that God has to respond in anger towards sin. And there's a future wrath against sin. He's going to talk about that in chapter 2. When we stand before God in judgment, there's a wrath that's poured out against sin at the great white throne judgment. But here what Paul is talking about is the present release of God's wrath against sin. Read again verse 18. For the wrath of God, present tense, is revealed right now from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is being revealed right now. How is it being revealed? Well, three times in this section he's going to say, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. That is, God releases us to the consequences of our sin. That's how the wrath of God is being expressed, in a sense, right now in human history. As C.S. Lewis wrote years ago, in the end, there are only two kind of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Because he won't coerce. But even in the releasing of us to the consequences of our sin, God is showing grace. Think about the opposite. What if God didn't allow us to experience the consequence of our sin? Then we wouldn't understand that sin destroys us, right? 
If he guarded and protected us always from the consequence of sin, we wouldn't understand that life is only found in God. It's not found outside of God. And we would keep trying to chase life outside of God instead of finding life in God. So God, in his mercy and grace, actually allows us to experience the consequence of our sin so that we will be turned to him for healing. Now, let me illustrate. Uh, sometimes our actual needs and our felt needs don't align, right? Sometimes we feel we need something that we don't actually need. And we chase after that. Felt needs and actual needs don't always align. Uh, one illustration, um, high blood pressure is described as the silent killer. The reason is you often don't feel that you have high blood pressure until you have a stroke or heart, heart, heart attack, heart disease, right? So you don't, you're not feeling your body, but your blood pressure is high. It's called silent killer. So you might feel like you need a Big Mac or you need, you know, a supersized fries and the, you know, the 32-ounce Coke. But what you need is a better diet and you need exercise and you need blood pressure medicine. But what you feel you need is a Big Mac, right? And, but you don't. Your felt needs and your actual needs do not align. And so what consequences do in our lives is it brings our actual needs to the forefront. And we realize, this is what I actually need. I need to be rescued from sin. I need God. Even if I don't feel like it in the moment, this is what I actually need. And God allows consequences in our lives to drive us to life that's only found in him. So notice again, verse 21, it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Their reason became broken and it affected their affections or their desires. They, they loved things that were not lovely. And then they chose things that brought death and not life and it affected their friendships and marriages and relationships and even our bodies and everything became broken because idolatry almost always leads to other forms of sin and immorality, right? We reject God, it plays out in all of life. So notice this is the downward spiral and choices of sin. First, we worship ourselves. We have to worship something, so where do we turn? Let's read again verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed creatures, four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, literally, uh, my translation is, is, is it's New American Standard. I really like it. It's usually pretty literal. It's not here because what Paul actually says is not they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, but literally they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. A definite article in there. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And what is the lie? That you can be your own God, right? That's the fundamental lie, that you can find life outside of God. You don't need God. Life can be lived independently from God, which is completely and utterly the lie because we are contingent or dependent beings. We are finite beings. We need God. But what do they do? They exchange the truth of God for the lie that we can find life outside of ourselves. And as a result, we idolize our own selves. We worship our own selves. We believe 
that we have the authority to define our own identity and purpose and calling and mission, and we don't. If we've been made by another, that one gets to choose who we are. You probably heard the, the poem uh, Invictus, William Ernest Henley, fam very, very famous. Um, it's a great rallying cry, except uh, it's a lie. Um, but other than that, right, it's really good. Last two stanzas go like this. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, right? It's a difficult life. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet, the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I've got this. No, you don't. Exchange the truth of God for the lie that I don't need God and I can live independently from God. That is idolatry, fundamentally idolatry of self, and it leads to immorality. We worship ourselves and then we misuse our bodies. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, hang with me, okay? This is a huge, huge, huge issue in our culture. Uh, so much so, we're, we're going to block out four or five weeks after spring break, and we're going to talk about gender and sexuality. Okay, so this morning, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what these verses mean, but I want you to hang with me. If you want us really dig into this topic more, I can give you some more literature to read. I also know it's going to be a really sensitive topic for some of you. Because it's maybe an issue that you struggle with or a friend struggles with. I've had friends whose parents have left one another because of homosexual relationships. So I want you just to hang with me for just a moment. First thing I want you, because I can't cover everything this morning. We'll cover it more extensively later. Um, and we'll actually even do like some, some lunches after church so we can come in and really wrestle with this. So this is going to be a little bit cursory, but hang with me. First thing to note is what Paul is addressing here is not same-sex attraction. Paul is talking about homosexual behavior. And that's really important. In the Greek language, it's really clear what he's talking about. He's not talking about same-sex attraction. He's talking about homosexual behavior. So why then does Paul bring up homosexual behavior or activity here in this place? Is he saying, well, this is the worst sin of all? No, that is not at all what Paul is saying. In fact, as you read on, and we look further at this downward progression of sin, uh, we're going to see that Paul actually uh, mentions this long, long, long list of sins, including uh, gossip. Anybody? <laughs> a disobedience to parents. Heterosexual sin of adultery. Right, so Paul's not saying this is the worst of the worst. The reason he's bringing it up here is because he's talking about what God has revealed in nature, that God has revealed himself in nature, and he has revealed our identity through nature as tied to him. So here's what happens. When mankind rejects God, 
We are untethered from our own identity. You can't know who you actually are apart from God. You can't. But you will create an identity because you have to have an identity. But if your identity is not tethered to God, you can't know who you actually are. Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made us. The creator knows who you are because the creator made you a particular way. The creator knows how you work. And when you reject the creator, you are rejecting your anchor for your own self-identity. But notice in this statement, when he made man and woman in his own image, he made them male and female. Meaning a significant part of our identity is also tied to our bodies and our maleness and our femaleness. We, we, we are spiritual beings. There is a, there's an inner part of us that relates to the spirit of God, but it does so through our bodies. Everything we do is through our bodies. We worship with our bodies. We eat with our bodies. We sleep with our bodies. We have friendships with our bodies. We study. Everything we do is through our bodies. And so deeply tied to our identity is, in fact, our sexuality. But if we reject God, then we're going to not really be completely clear as to why our sexuality actually matters, but we're going to make something up. That's why he's putting his finger here on homosexuality in particular and the culture that's gotten to this point where it doesn't understand fundamentally what it means to be male and female and can't because the creator decides what it means to be male and female. That's why Paul brings this up here, as it reflects man's kind rejection of God's nature and our nature in nature. That's the reason he uses this particular sin as an illustration of what's happening to mankind as a result of its rejection. Now notice what he says here in verse 27. Receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, uh, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, that, that's, that's uh, sexual sin. There's often disease associated with that, the receiving of the body. I don't think that's what he's talking about. What I think he's talking about here is the penalty is actually the sin itself. Right? And all the guilt and shame that comes from all various forms of sexual sin. In the apocryphal book, Wis- the book of wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, it says, one is punished by the very things by which he sins. Man, I can attest to that. <laughs> the the sin itself and how it affects me is the punishment itself. So, if you are right in this moment tempted to say, yeah, glad Paul went after those people, uh, next week Paul is coming after you. <laughs> because next week he's going to talk about the self-righteous person. And remember, when Jesus really tagged people, man, he really went after him, and his anger was flared. Who was, who was his anger toward? It was towards self-righteous religious people. Just remember that. And he had a lot of compassion for people who are struggling with morality issues, like prostitutes in their life. There's a lot of compassion and mercy. Self-righteous people. So I'm just saying, let's, let's hold off, and maybe what God is beginning to stir up in you is, is a bit of compassion. So why did he use this? Well, he used this particular illustration of a type of sin because it reflects the, the, the sense of when we reject God as God, then we can't know who we are. 
And that's going to affect our sense of our sexuality, our identity, because being made in the image of God being, means being made male and female. Now, we'll talk a lot more about that uh, later, later in the spring. Third, we corrupt our relationships. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Man, wow, that's quite a list. Uh, you should have chosen the love sermon this morning, right? Um, unrighteousness and ungodliness, he says at the beginning of this section. That's the header of the section. Ungodliness, that is sin toward God, rejecting God, not letting God be God. Unrighteousness, sin towards one another. If we're made in the image of God, male and female, and we're brothers and sisters, we're sons and daughters of God, that means we are by nature supposed to be family. Humanity is designed to be a family what do families do? They take care of one another, except when they don't. And so all of these sins here are relational sins. The sins that we commit against one another to tear apart our families and our neighborhoods and our communities and our entire cultures, our society becomes corrupted and broken because man cannot live without God. A fourth step. We stop at nothing. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the culture that we live in. You have to not just tolerate me, accept me, affirm. You have to affirm. There's pressure to affirm. You have to say evil is good. That's where cultures get when cultures reject God. That's where any of us can get if we say no to God. So we need good news, right? We really, really, really need good news. And we're going to spend two more weeks talking about why we really need good news. How do we respond this morning? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. First, uh, confess. There's just a great freedom when God's spirit brings conviction upon you uh, that you, you say, yes, God, you're right. And maybe there's an immorality in your life that's rooted in your lack of real deep, profound, accurate self-understanding. And when you say yes, you begin to progressively experience the power of God to reshape your sense of who you actually are. Or maybe there's idolatry in your heart, you're, you're worshiping something other than God. There's something that really holds first place in your affections and in your heart. Right now, God is pointing that out through his spirit. Confession means literally to say the same thing. God's saying something about your sin. Confession is saying the same thing as God. You're right. Maybe this morning you, just, you need to say before the Lord, I confess. You're right. Uh, second, receive. First John 4.10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word we never use in common language. It is a word you should know if you study your Bible. It means this, the satisfaction of wrath. Okay? 
God isn't wrathful, 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 angry, angry, angry. God is love. God is also holy. Because he's holy, he has to react in anger towards sin. He can't allow sin into his intimate fellowship. So he's angry towards sin or he's wrathful towards sin. But what God has done is he's poured out all of his anger toward your sin into Jesus. Right? So he's transferred your debt to Jesus. So he is the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath has happened in Jesus. So you don't have to bear the weight of God's anger, righteous anger towards sin because it's been poured out in Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you've never said yes to that, man, there's, there's freedom in realizing that all of your debts have been forgiven because they've been paid for by Jesus. He's the satisfaction of God's wrath, this righteous anger towards sin. It's been placed on Jesus, so it doesn't have to be placed upon you. And the way that you receive it is, as Paul said, from faith to faith, faith beginning to end. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, but you're offered that freely as a gift. And all that you have to do is just say yes. So I'd encourage you, if you've never said yes, to God, thank you for pouring out your wrath righteously against my sin into Jesus. I, I accept that gift. And then third, maybe this week God is calling you to worship. Kind of lift up your eyes. Look around you at what God has created, the, the beauty and the goodness and the kindness that you see in creation, that you see maybe in a friend, that you see in a, a, a meal that you eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe God's really calling you to not just walk so quickly through life that you miss all these beautiful gifts that he has laid in front of you. Instead, you proclaim to him that um, you know all good and perfect gifts are from above. That's worship, right? Just proclaiming to God thanks. So maybe that's what God's calling you to uh, this morning.